This is a special day today as we remember just the, the gift that God has extended to us, not just in salvation, which is enough, but also in the fact that we can gather together at, as a church here in Hagerstown. What a gift it is. There's only some of us that will be gathering here in this room, though. What, a, what an inter- interesting segue. We're going to dismiss Hubtown kids now. And so if, uh, if you're some of the little kids, if you're in Gray Station or in Blue Station, you can go ahead and come forward now. Blue Station, ages 3 to 5. You're going to be heading out this way. You're going to be with the Shaddens. And Gray Station, age 6 up to 5th grade. You're going to be exiting to my right. I want to talk a little bit about what these guys are learning. The uh, Blue Station this morning is going to be learning uh, the, uh, the invitation, learning of the invitation that God extends to his people, particularly to children. Jesus is the friend of little children. Jesus is the friend of of little children. He welcomes little children to himself. That's what, the, that's what this group over here is going to be learning. This group over here, what are they going to be learning? Well, what happens after, those, or after death to those who are not united to Christ by faith? This is the point of the catechism questions that we're working through this morning. What is the answer? What happens after death to those not united to Christ by faith? The scriptures could not be any more clear. That those who die in their sin apart from God that they'll be cast from the presence of God into hell to be justly punished forever. This is a reality. This is why we have events like we had last night. Preaching the gospel, inviting our friends and our neighbors into a room where we can hear the gospel clearly declared. Why do we do such things? We've been commanded to do so. But in addition to that, those who are not united to Christ by faith, the scriptures are clear, they'll be cast out from God's presence into hell, and there they'll be justly punished forever. So glad for the gospel, that we as a church can enjoy that gospel, that we can find comfort in that good news, but also that we can proclaim that gospel. The scriptures say that we are Christ's ambassadors. We're celebrating this morning 140 years of being Christ's ambassadors here in Hagerstown. Maybe you know this, at the beginning of the 1880s, a group of Baptists, fiery group there in Baltimore, they saw that there wasn't a good gospel work going on here, that they, they wanted to be a part of it. And so they began to pray that God would send, and wouldn't you know that they prayed that prayer because of this truth that our kids are learning, and God called some of them to come be missionaries here in Hagerstown. So they packed up their stuff, got on that train, and they found their way here to Hagerstown. And ever since that day, God has been blessing them as both those who have enjoyed the gospel and those who have proclaimed the gospel. We're asking God to give us another 140 years and maybe more. Some of those guys those first missionaries here to Hagerstown, they're what you might call a hero. But that's not the kind of hero the culture is looking for. I want to ask you, here's the turn. Here's the introduction to the sermon this morning. What sort of hero does our culture look for? Really think about that. What sort of hero does our culture look for today? Who are the heroes of our culture? Not necessarily the ones that maybe you would hold, but collectively, as a group, if it were a democracy and we were to vote on our top heroes, who do you think our culture would declare to be those heroes? It might be sports legends. There's some good ones. Maybe some musicians. They've really spread the love through their music. Maybe in that way you consider them a hero. Maybe it's a brazen politician who's not afraid of what people think of him. He's not afraid to say the truth, at least in your perspective. And so that's who you would say is your hero. Or maybe it's first responders or military. If we were to ask that of the Jews of the first century, and really the Jews of all time, who are your heroes? The top of their list would be a man by the name of Moses. A man by the name of Moses. 
The first thing I want you to consider this morning from our text, before we get into the text, is that Moses is a hero. Moses really, really is a hero. Do you love a good story? I absolutely love a good story. And I'm one of those weird people, you can probably tell by my preaching, I don't like it when stories end. I just want them to keep going. Resolution and more trouble, then more resolution, and then backstory and more. I just want more and more. This morning, I want to tell you about one of my favorite stories. It's about this guy, Moses. One of my favorite stories, one of my favorite movies in all, of all time is The Prince of Egypt. Raise your hand if you've seen that. It's a fantastic movie. It's a, just a, it's a, view, a visual feast. It, it sounds amazing. The songs are terrific. And the story is epic. We see this man, Moses, used by God to let his people go. Moses was an Egyptian. He's the son of Pharaoh, adopted and of sorts. But he left all of that behind in an attempt to identify not with the Egyptians, but with the Hebrews. He became like his brothers and sisters, literally, and every way. He spent time in the wilderness in preparation to deliver his brothers from slavery. And at the appointed time, he came back. He was the first to escape the bonds of Egypt. And now knowing the way, knowing how to get out of Egypt, he comes back and he leads many brothers and sisters to glory. Many brothers and sisters to the promised land. And furthermore, there in the wilderness, he delivers the word of God to the people of God. And you better know that Moses and the word that he received from the Lord that it, humanly speaking, shaped a people. Which, by the way, that's what God's word does. It shapes a people. It creates a people. We understand God. We understand each other. We understand ourselves. We understand our future and how we are to live and operate in the here and now because of God's word. And that's what Moses, humanly speaking, provided for the people of God. It's an incredible story. It's an incredible story. And there was so much reverence. There's so much honor amongst, amidst the Jewish people for this great hero, Moses, that it was maybe even a, a possibility that some of them in their minds had begun to think that because Moses had received the message through, uh, of God, the word of God, through angels, that maybe in some way he was actually superior to them. He was the one that held the tablets. He was the one that met with God there in the tabernacle. It's a big part of what the passage is about today. This great man, this incredible hero, Moses. And it's answering the question, is he superior to Jesus? Now before we read our text this morning, which is Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So if you've got your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn there. Matter of fact, I'll turn there as well and declare to you what page it's actually found on in the hard black Bible in front of you, which you're welcome to use. It is on page 1188. But before we read that, I just want to encourage you. If you've got a copy of the loop, that what we call our loop, the bulletin, if you've got a copy of that, I just want, to, I want you to open that up real quick. I want you to look inside of it. On the inside flap, there's the left side and the right side. Look at the right side all the way down at the bottom. It's got uh, a little section there that says, read ahead for next Sunday or something along those lines. And I, I really want you to, I want to encourage you as your pastor, as a spiritual shepherd for you, I want to encourage you to take advantage of that particular piece of the loop because we want you to be in the loop. We want when you come to the service on Sunday morning to, to hear God's word expounded, opened up, and expounded, I, I want you to be ready to go with the bucket out right underneath the spigot, right? And one of the ways that you can be prepared is by praying through this passage, whatever's found there, it's going to be there every week, whatever we have put there, that's what this next sermon's about. And so take some time, maybe, maybe on Monday morning, maybe on Saturday night, maybe every morning, 
whatever you decide to do. But I want to encourage you, take advantage of that information and ask the Lord in faith as you read it to prepare your heart to hear what's going to be said from his word on the coming Lord's day. So be sure to be using and taking advantage of that. But without any further ado, let's look at what the scriptures say about this man, Moses. Let's work to understand what the point of this passage is. And so Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Scriptures say, Therefore, holy brothers, you who have shared in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Verse 4, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confession, our confidence, and our boasting in our hope. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, we pause and we ask you to do what only you can do. Would you help us to see Jesus more clearly? Would you help us to understand what you require of us, what he has accomplished for us? Father, would our hearts be drawn further in as we behold the face of Jesus? And as we've prayed throughout this study, this great book, may the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This is our hope. This is our collective prayer. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. This chapter is about faithfulness. The entire chapter it ends really with the unfaithfulness of the Israelites there in the wilderness. We heard the story of that great hero, faithful to God in every way. What does he do? He delivers the word to the people. They agree to it. And then we see throughout scriptures their unfaithfulness to God. And so this chapter helps us to see what unfaithfulness looks like in the Israelites there in the wilderness. And it highlights the faithfulness of Moses, again, as God's servant. And, of course, he's not perfect, but the, the preacher, the writer of the book of Hebrews, is not trying to pick a fight with the Israelites. He's not trying to pick a fight with the Jews who really, really highly revered Moses. My, Moses wasn't perfect. And yet they, don't, they, don't, they, they lift him up, or he lifts him up, rather, to demonstrate him as, as a picture of faithfulness to God. But most especially, this chapter in its entirety, really, is about the greater faithfulness. And that greater faithfulness displayed by Jesus, the Son of God. And so we see the first idea, really, this morning was that Moses is, in fact, a hero. But after reading through this passage, I want you to also see that Jesus is the greater hero. Jesus is the greater hero, greater than Moses the scriptures say there, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. There's a strong comparison that's being made between Jesus and Moses. Now, you might be asking this morning, aside from the fact that Moses is an incredible hero, why does the preacher, why does the author of the book of Hebrews, why does he po uh, posit Jesus and Moses there together? Why does he draw a comparison, a likeness between the two of them? Well, the answer really is found in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 22. Moses here writing, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers, and it's to him that you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord 
my God, or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so the Israelites were looking for that Messiah, that man who would be raised up like Moses, but better. Like Moses, but even more faithful. But the point is, there is a likeness. And I've alluded to this before, even in a few weeks ago when we were ending our study in chapter 2, I pointed out to you that there really are some similarities between Jesus and Moses. More than that they're men, more than that they're Jews, we also see both left behind the glory of the palace. They left it behind. Now one, it rightly belonged there, the other didn't, and yet in similarity, They both left the glory of the palace. Both became like their brothers in every way. Moses could have stayed. But his heart began began to be affected by his brothers and sisters. And that called him out of the palace into their lives. And he became like them. He removed from himself the trappings of a prince. And he began to don the clothing of a pauper. Like his brothers in every way. Furthermore, we see the similarities. Both brought deliverance for their people and delivered them from slavery, from bondage, from entrapment. That's what Moses did for his people, for the brothers and sisters, for the, for the Hebrews. And is that not what Jesus, our Savior, has done for us? He's delivered us from slavery. He's delivered us from the fear of death. More than that, just as was prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, both spoke the word of God to the people of God. There had been a long time coming when Moses spoke the word of God to the people of God. They were thirsty. They were ready to hear it. Is that not the same? Jesus says the fields are white unto harvest. They're ready to hear it. They're ready to be, to be reaped. The harvest is ready. Jesus shows up, and what does he declare? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news that I've come to save you. And what's most striking to me in the similarities, and it's explicitly noted here in chapter 3 and these first few verses, is in, spite of, in addition to all of these similarities, they both were faithful to God. They were both faithful to God. That word faithful means dependable, reliable, obedient, trustworthy. As it relates to their relationship to God and to God's people, these two brothers were faithful. Regarding the word of God, Moses was faithful to deliver it. And to obey it. And what of Jesus? He was faithful to obey it and to fulfill it. Did you catch that? And that's the hint of how there's a difference between the two of them. For all the similarities, there are some differences. And there's two that are listed out here for us. To help us understand that Jesus actually is greater than Moses. And in which way is he greater than Moses? We see in verse 3. It says, For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. One way we are to understand the superiority of Jesus over Moses is by way of architecture. Jesus is greater. He's worthy of more glory and more honor than Moses. In which way? By way of architecture. Recently, Sarah and I had the privilege to stay in New York City for a few days. It was incredible. I'm a country boy, and I probably stuck out like a sore thumb, but I had a great time. From our hotel in Brooklyn... We could clearly see out our window the Empire State Building. And there's a lot of 
buildings that are better looking and maybe even more uh, emotionally in, in, insightful than uh, this building, but it's still an impressive building. Almost 100 years old, it stands at 102 stories tall, 1,454 feet at its pinnacle. The Empire State Building was the tallest building in the world for nearly, in the world, for nearly 40 years after its completion. Aren't you proud to be an American? And today, it still remains one of the world's great towers in an unmatched architectural wonder. It's a testament, really, to the power of American industry, isn't it? It really is. And this isn't a sermon about how awesome America is, but the point, the illustration is very clear and similar. The Empire State Building testifies to the world, and it did for 40 years, that we are unmatched in our industrial abilities. Unmatched. You see, the Empire State Building is an impressive feat, but the point of the Empire State Building is not the Empire State Building. We don't come to the Empire State Building and worship it. And when we ooh and awe over its incredible stature, we don't turn to the rocks and say, you did good. Who do we turn to? Well, they're not around anymore, but we turn to the designers. And I won't go into who they are, but you can imagine somebody in the 1930s and they, they're the, well, actually in the 1920s designed this and they are the ones that are to be praised. They're the ones who deserve the honor and the glory. And the ones that hung out on those large beams eating their lunch where those pictures were taken, it was an, it's an incredible thing. They are to be praised. Not the building. What's the point? The building, incredible as it is, it's actually just a testimony to the one who built it. It's just a testimony to the one who built it. It doesn't testify of the building itself. And what Jesus how, how Jesus differs from Moses is that Moses is the building and Jesus is the builder. Moses is the building, Jesus is the builder. Which one deserves the greater degree of glory and honor? The one who has marvelously built the people of God through the word of God using Moses as his servant. And I want you to notice something. When we did this study the, a few chapters back, and we began to look at Jesus maybe being better than angels, and then we were like, yeah, okay, it's pretty clear he's better than angels. Remember that? Jesus was lifted up and posited as being much greater and worthy of more glory and honor than the angels, but not at the expense of pushing the angels down. Did you notice that? The same is true for Moses. God's not saying, the, 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 the preacher here is not saying, Moses, yeah, you got it all wrong. He's actually kind of a, a terrible dude. Did you know he murdered somebody? Do you remember that time he actually hit the rock? He wasn't quite faithful then, was he? Not that second time. That's not what this author is trying to get across to us. He wants us to see that Jesus is worthy of so much more glory and honor, not because everybody else is terrible, but because he is so much greater, and he's built this. He's built this house. He's built this word and given it to us. He built Moses and sent Moses. How in the world could Moses be drawn out? That's the name. Drawn out of the water when he should have been destroyed by those crocodiles. You remember that scene. You were nervous. He floated right in there to Pharaoh's daughter. Who built that? You better know God himself built that. He built Moses for such a time as this. Moses is the building. Jesus is the builder. That's true of us too. You look at this building and I look at the stained glass windows. They're, they're absolutely gorgeous. The stones that were set 130 years ago, the cornerstones, wow, incredible. The testimony, our history as a church, or the history of our church even being merged and that fledgling church three or four years ago being planted, all of these things are amazing. But none of those things testify to ourselves. None of that does. It all testifies to Jesus the one who is the builder of all things. And so how is Jesus better than Moses? Well, we don't have to point out all of Moses' flaws. 
we just see Jesus compared to him, and we see they're both faithful. Of course, Jesus much more than Moses, but they're both faithful and very, very similar. But the reality is that Jesus is the builder, and he's worthy of more glory, and he's worthy of more honor. I just want to park there just for a minute. There's nothing wrong with the way that the Jews would revere Moses. He is a faithful man, and he should be counted in a sense of double honor. And yet there was a reality that for many Jews, he was a stumbling block. They had elevated him above God, potentially. They'd gotten things out of order, potentially. And I'm just curious, is that, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever taken something that was really good and turned it to something that was a bit more like idolatry? Have you ever taken something that God has given to you, built and placed in your life, and reordered it in some sense and got things out of whack? That's what the point of this book really is about. If you're like that, if that's what you've done, if you're like me and you take good things that God gives you and you get them out of order, that's what this book's about. It's smacking us upside the head gently and saying, no, you've got things wrong. You've got confused and it's understandable. Moses is a great guy. We need to remember Jesus is so much greater. The Israelites, they loved Moses. The first century Jews who had now placed their faith in Jesus, they loved their lives. They loved their safety. They loved being able to meet on a regular basis. They loved their families being together and not in danger. And yet, they faced danger. And these good things like family and relationships and even life itself was under threat. And there was a temptation for them to make that of greater importance than Jesus. And so the writer says, hey, the greatest thing that you can think of, Jesus is greater than that. Not even close. He's the builder. He's established all things. He's worthy of the most honor and glory. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say in verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Did you catch the contrast there? Moses is a servant. Jesus is a son. He's the son. We see Jesus having the role of the son of God and Moses as the servant of God. And while there's similarities and overlap, the, the point is that the son is worthy of more honor. And the point is that the son is the point. It's all about the son. They're playing on the same team. They're striving for the same goal, the servant and the son. But at the end of the day, the difference is just, it's immense. The servant has to just be obedient for whatever the son declares as he rules, co-equal with the father, in the father's house. One serves the main point. The other is the main point. Notice it says of Moses, the servant, he testified to the things that were to be spoken later. You catch that? He testified to the things that were to be spoken of later. They're both faithful. But Moses, again, was faithful to deliver God's word, to prophesy God's word, to speak of the Son. Jesus was faithful to fulfill the law of God given through the servant of God. The Israelites were looking for the Messiah. Why? Humanly speaking, because Moses' writings. Because the word of God given to Moses disseminated to the people. He was a servant. Jesus was the son and is the son. In addition to the explicit references to the coming Messiah that we see in the Old Testament, you might still be asking, are there other ways that Moses foreshadowed or testified of the things that were to come. Well, there are many of those in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. And we see the connection. When we see a foreshadowing in the Old Testament and we see the actual thing, the object, the substance in the New Testament, theologians call that a type. Type in the Old Testament, archetype in the New Testament. 
When the Old Testament says, hey, here's a picture of some hero, and then we see in the New Testament that there's exposition on that, and it says, hey, that hero is actually a type of the archetype, which is Jesus Christ. And in that, in some small way that's being pointed out right there, Jesus is being magnified through that type. And so what are the ways? Well, there are numerous ways that through Moses' writings, inspired by the word of God, given to us, shaping a people for 3,500 years. There's a lot of them. Let me just give you a few. The first is the tabernacle. The first is the tabernacle. We're not going to spend a lot of time this morning. Really, I'm just going to mention it in passing. But as we continue our study through the book of Hebrews, you'll begin to see that the tabernacle, though it is a noun, not a person, it's a thing, it is a type of Christ. And that veil that separated really the people of God from the presence of God was torn. And in a similar way, Jesus' body was also torn. And in that tearing made a way for us to enter into the presence of God. And so the tabernacle, or the veil in the tabernacle, is a type of Christ, Jesus being the archetype, Jesus being the point. The sacrificial system is another thing that we see. Given by God to Moses through or for the people, the sacrificial system, and it's payment for sin. What sort of payment is actually delivered by shedding the blood of a goat or a lamb or a bull, the scriptures tell us there is no real affecting power in that sacrifice. But it accesses by faith through the type, the archetype, which is Jesus himself. Moses declared to the people years before the Messiah would breathe this air and walk on this earth. He declared and testified through the sacrificial system as a type of the archetype, which is Jesus Christ. Furthermore, we see it in the Passover as Moses records that for us. God delivers his people. He judges the disobedience. And how does he do that? Through the Passover. That's a picture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Passover is the type, and Jesus Christ is the archetype. Moses was faithful in all of God's house. He was faithful to testify. He was faithful to the end. He indeed was and is a hero. Heroes are wonderful. Heroes are helpful for us. But only insofar as they point to Jesus. And this is a point of contention that if you're not a believer here this morning, you might say, That's, that seems a little narrow-minded. I want to help you to see that every single story ever written really echoes and serves as a type of the archetype. Every sort of story, whether it's Christian in nature or non-Christian in nature, if it has the same ideas of rescuing and resolving conflict and bringing salvation of any sort, it really is a faint echo, some louder, some more quiet. It's a faint echo of Jesus, the archetype. And here Moses is helpful for us as a hero, but only insofar as he points to Jesus as he emulates Jesus. And that really leads us to the main idea this morning. The main idea doesn't even involve Moses. Here's the main idea. Endurance comes from considering Jesus our faithful apostle and high priest. Endurance comes from considering Jesus our faithful apostle and high priest. The life of Moses It's helpful for us. He's quite a hero. And the beautiful parts of Moses are that in many, many ways he was faithful to God. And it helps us to see, it points the telescope in a sense. As we look through Moses' life, we see Jesus through Moses. We see his faithfulness. But it's not just Moses that we can see Jesus through. There's other ways. I just want to write down, I want to encourage you to write down a few 
I want the first one is through allegory. When I say allegory, I really mean stories. And I'm talking extra biblical stories. Some of you are thinking, I'm so spiritual, I don't have time to read a kid's book. And that may or may not be true. But I would encourage you, if you've never read the Chronicles of Narnia, you're missing out. Aslan, that great lion who always comes to the aid of the children of Adam. He's majestic, he's glorious, he's dangerous, but he's good. And as we read that story, even though it's not about necessarily the Christian faith, it is a picture that, that helps to come alive in our minds, this beauty of who Jesus is and what he's actually done for us. And as we read those stories, our hearts become alive. And as we look through the Chronicles of Narnia towards Jesus, we can see through the life of Aslan, we can see Jesus a little more clearly. There's, not, there's thousands and thousands of stories that you could read that as you do read them, it will stir your affections for Jesus as you begin to ask, in what way does this hero really point to Jesus? In which ways does he not? And therefore become more of a villain and not a hero. And so allegory, stories, read them. You're not too spiritual for that. Enjoy those kids' books. They'll help you love Jesus more. But I would also encourage you, not just with allegory, but church history. If you don't read church history, you say, well, maybe you say, well, I don't like to read that much. Well, I, I get that, but there's lots of ways that you can imbibe on church history. One way is through Torchlighters, the series. There's a bunch of ways that you can uh, access the, the cartoon series, Torchlighters, but it really helps us to walk through and see so many of the great heroes of the Christian faith throughout church history. From the, maybe 80 years ago to 2,000 years ago, it's really, really helpful for us to learn about church history. Let me just point to two folks quickly. Athanasius, I, I mentioned him a few weeks ago. He risked his own life to declare and to defend the truths about God. And when we think of this man and the sacrifice that he made, it echoes in our hearts because it sounds like Jesus. Dying for the church, dying for the truth to go forward. Or what about Elizabeth Elliot, that great saint who dedicated her life to her husband's murderers? It's not a story. It's not a fable about some lion that flies. A man lost his life sharing the gospel with those who were so far from God, living in absolute spiritual darkness. He was, his life was snuffed out. And Elizabeth Elliot said, I'm not going home. I'll stay here with my family. And we'll finish the work that we started. And yeah, my husband's dead, but that didn't stop the call of God on our lives. Who does that sound like? You say she's a woman, but she sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't she? My goodness. She laid her life down for murderers. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Church history. If you don't read church history, you should be reading it. You should be watching it on TV or, or whatever it is. There's some on Netflix. The best of all. There's allegory. There's church history. But the best of all really is the biblical heroes. And I would encourage you. I'd be, I'd be such a failure if I didn't encourage you to read the biblical heroes. The church history that's actually in the book. Moses. What a hero he is. We should be reading about Moses. Why? Because he, in very small ways and in large ways, he emulates Jesus and he helps us to see him. But he's not alone. David does the same thing. He defeated the enemies of God's people and led them in the charge to overtake them. Or Joshua, who led God's people into the promised land where they enjoyed rest. And now that story breaks down, but in those small instances, there's parts that we can look through the story of Joshua. And as he conquests through the land, we see Jesus clearly through these things. They're all types. They're pictures. And all of these things help us to endure. Why? Because we, they're, they're helping us to consider Jesus. Again, all heroes are heroes insofar as they help us to see the faithfulness of Jesus and the beauty of Jesus.
That's the whole point of this chapter. Even the villains, so to speak, loosely said, are there to help us to see Jesus and contrast his faithfulness. That's the theme. That's the theme. So we're to emulate the faithfulness of Moses. We're to consider the faithfulness of Jesus and particularly how Moses foreshadows Jesus. And I want to highlight something for you today. I want to highlight that God has called us to faithfulness. That's what this passage is really about. Not just the faithfulness of Jesus, but it turns in an exhortation and it turns in a call to us to emulate Jesus by being faithful to him. I'm going to give you five facts about faithfulness. I'm going to give you two today and three next week. I'll pay you next time. But two today, three next week, but total five facts concerning faithfulness and all of them from Hebrews chapter 3. The first one is this. Faithfulness to Christ assures salvation. Faithfulness to Christ assures salvation. Verse 6 it says, and we are his house, like Moses was his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our, our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Who is he talking to here? Verse 6 he says, well maybe, it almost seems like he's confused. And you are his house if you hold fast. Maybe he's taking a step back like, I thought you were, but now I'm not really sure. Well, that's not exactly what's happening. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, we see that he calls out to the church, to, to the, the Christian Jews there in the first century, and he calls them holy brothers. Holy, brother and, holy brothers and holy sisters. That holy part, he's saying, you're holy. Jesus the great high priest of chapter 1, verse 3, has made purification for you. He's purified you. He's set you apart. He's called you out, as we see there in verse 1, chapter 3. You who share in a heavenly calling, you've been called. You're holy. He's made propitiation for you. But he modifies their their name here, brothers, he modifies it with holy, but he gives them the name brothers. Brethren, family. What does he mean by that? He goes on to say, use the same uh, word uh, previously, actually, in chapter 2, verses 12 and in 17. Calling them brothers. They are who share in that heavenly calling. They're brothers to Christ. They're brothers to Moses. They're part of the house. But he goes on to say, your brothers, your holy brothers, if you hold fast. This idea of holding fast, what does he, what does he mean? Well, this is one of the main object, objectives for the, for, the, for, for the author, for his, his audience to hear. That they hold fast, that they not lose heart, that they keep confidence in Jesus. When difficulty comes, their hands are firmly Grasped onto Jesus, when persecution comes or, or trouble or death or temptation, he's saying, don't let go. Hold fast. And what are we holding fast to? I love how the New Living Translation gives us. We keep up our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. That's what we're to do. We're holy brothers. We're holy sisters. We're called to God if... In difficulty, in temptation, we keep up our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. And we don't let go. And you might be saying, wait a minute, that doesn't sound very gospel-y. And I hope your radar is going off just a little tiny bit. I hope you're saying that kind of seems transactional. It kind of seems conditional. And really, it is. But maybe not in the way that you think it is. You see, what's being said here is this. Point A is true. This thing is true, but only if this thing is true. A is true if B is true. If this, then this. 
And this isn't the only time that we read this sort of conditional phrasing in the New Testament. You might say, well, I don't really feel comfortable with that. I want to know, does the rest of the Bible talk about that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Romans chapter 8. If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to open. I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8. This will be worth seeing this morning. It will be on the screen for you. Romans 8, and beginning in verse 9, we actually see three in this passage. Or more, maybe. It starts out by saying, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. It's a statement of fact. This is true. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. But let me qualify that. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. What? It could be reversed around. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. It's conditional. But it goes on. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. What do we see there in verse 11? If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he'll give life to your mortal body. This is a reality. If you are walking in the Spirit, you have the Spirit. If you have the Spirit of God, you will be dead to sin. You're not a slave to it any longer. This is a reality. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on. Look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But then what does it say? Provided. In other words, if we suffer with him, in order that way we may also be glorified with him. This isn't the only few verses that we see in the New Testament that kind of give us this same sort of equation. Again, in Romans chapter 11, verse 22. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Colossians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. They all have this basic structure. And what they're helping us to see is the reality of Matthew 7, verse 21. When you tie that together with the lesson that our children are learning, it, it's, a star, it's, a, it's a terrifying one. And the reality is this, Matthew 7, verse 21. This is the words of our Savior. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of, of lawlessness. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And he's going to say, no. Jesus makes it clear. Only those who do the will of the Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we could say it another way. Those who do not do the will of God will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The reality is all those, all they who claim to be Christ's are not. I don't say that in a snarky way. But that's what we see being lifted from the text today. There are some who believe that they are in Christ, and yet their life doesn't really line up with that. The key to resolving this tension, really, of this, what seems to be conditional promise based on what we do, us earning it, the key is to understand that every human being is limited in what we can know about the spiritual condition of other human beings, including ourselves. We're dependent on an outward display of spiritual realities while at the same time it's not exhaustive. And it's not always right. In other words, how, we, how can we know that uh, we are saved or that other people are saved? Well, here's the reality. Generally speaking, if you are a Christian, if you're in Christ, you'll act like it. 
When David is anointed, do you remember what takes place? Do you remember King David, that little boy, little shepherd boy? Samuel instructs the people, man can only see on the outward appearance, guys, but Yahweh, he looks on the heart. And the idea is that we have a limited view of ourselves and of others. We can only see the tip of the iceberg. We can only see a bit of who the other person is next to us. We have really little idea about what's happening under the surface. But God, when he looks at us, he sees the entirety. He sees the comprehensive nature of who you are as a person, body and soul. That axiom has been so misused. Some use it to say that it doesn't matter what the outside looks like. God only cares about my heart. It's a lie. It's not true. No. Others use it to say um, that, that uh, it rarely what's shown on the outside correlates with what's going on on the inside. Again, that's just not true. And while you can't always judge a book by its cover, honestly, oftentimes you can. And you know what I'm talking about. Well, maybe, that, maybe that's why some of you didn't read Narnia. You should go back and read it. Some of those old covers are terrible. <clears throat> In those days, though, what the people of God needed when David was anointed was they needed a champion. They needed a real champion. And one who would lead the Israelites into battle before God. And while David was the youngest of his brothers, do you remember what David says to Saul when Saul says, you can't go out there and fight that Philistine. He's too big. David's like, do you see this necklace right here? He's like, but you're, you're just a shrimp. You don't know how to do any battle. You don't know how to really, like, live in the real world. You're just a shepherd. And David's like, have you seen this? This is a bear claw necklace. You know who made that? I made that. Yeah, I made that as I picked those claws out of that carcass, and I whittled them down, and I made this necklace. Now, he didn't do that, but some of, we overplay this idea that David was a shrimp. And that he was really, we, we like a good story, and so we overplay this idea that he was an underdog. But David says, do you know what happened one time, Saul, when a, a bear came in and grabbed one of my sheep? You know what I did? I don't do what you do. I chased that bear down, and I smacked it on top of the head. And when it dropped my sheep, I took the sheep out. And when that bear came and turned to me, I set the sheep down. I grabbed that bear by its beard, and I slammed it on a rock and punched him in the face. And then I took his claws out. You say, well, that's... That's not what happened. It is absolutely what happened. The scriptures are clear. And so we like to think that David was this, this shrimpy guy that really wasn't who he needed to be, but God just miraculously did some stuff. And that's true. But David was no slouch. He says, I did the same thing, Saul. I did the same thing to a lion. If you weren't impressed about the bear, are you not impressed about the lion? What is, da what is, you contrast David with Saul. You could look on David and see, you know, he, he was a little bit experienced. But this guy was pretty bad to the bone. When we look at Saul, he's literally the tallest man in Israel, and yet he's unfit to lead God's people to go fight this tall Goliath, right? And so we see that our perception is weak, but it's not non-existent. David was obviously the right man for the job. And Saul, while we thought he was, turned out not to be. What we see here is this. Faithfulness to Christ is actually what assures salvation. You see that? Faithfulness to Christ assures salvation. How can we know in the moment that we are Christ, that we are walking with Christ? Well, we have assurance of our salvation if we walk with him. And if in the end we are faithful. How do you know? How can you be assured? Are you repenting of sin? Are you trusting the Lord? Are you sinless? That's not the question. When you do sin, when you do fall, the Bible says a righteous man falls seven times but gets back up. And so faithfulness to Christ is what assures salvation, continuing even though we fail. Continuing down this path, lest we think salvation can be earned, think of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. What does it say? By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. It's not a result of works. Why? So that no one can boast. 
And so salvation cannot be earned. The scriptures make it clear. God doesn't give us faithfulness. He doesn't grant us salvation. And then if we are faithful, he'll let us keep it. He grants us salvation. He grants us faithfulness. And if we are faithful, then we know he really did truly give that to us. Lest we overemphasize grace on the other side, consider 1 John chapter 3. It says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. It goes on. Not much more needs to be read. For the sake of time, consider that. There's a temptation for us to say, hey, that person that just doesn't love the Lord and doesn't love the Lord's people and is going after sin, after sin, after sin and following their own lusts, I know they don't look like it, but I remember when they were seven years old, they prayed a prayer, and I believe it. I believe they're still a Christian. We can overemphasize grace. The scriptures make it very clear. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, whoever is unfaithful to the Lord and does not repent, who makes a practice of unrighteousness, he's not of God. 1 John 3.10 says. There's a doctrine called the eternal security of the believer. And it is a true doctrine. Essentially, it says, if you're saved, once you're saved, you're always saved. And we can hold that doctrine carelessly and to the neglect of the passage that we're reading together this morning. When we stand so firmly on a prior profession of faith and we ignore altogether the present signs of faith or the present signs of no faith. Truth manifests itself most clearly in an endurance all the way to the end of the path that God has called you on. It's not a, it is a condition, but it's not something that you earn. We can know that this is true if this is true. How do we know that we are in Christ if we are walking in Christ? We'll talk more about that particular point next week. The truth is that those who are being saved will remain faithful. It's also true that those who are faithful are focusing on Jesus. And that's the second of the five facts that you're going to get. Focusing on Christ encourages faithfulness. Focusing on Christ encourages faithfulness. Verse 1, it comes out very clearly. Consider Jesus. That's what we've been trying to do, right? As a church, that's what we gather to do. That's what our songs are about. Man, what a, what a set that we sang this morning. All of these things helping to stir our affections so that we can set our eyes and set our minds and consider Jesus. There's two areas that I want to just point out to you as you consider Jesus. How, what does that actually look like? Well, one area is that you, you consider Jesus doctrinally. Doctrinally. What do I mean by that? Well, what does the scripture say there? It says, consider Jesus... What does it say about him? He is the apostle and he is the high priest of our confession. It's describing Jesus to us. There's a lot of versions of Jesus out there. Jesus is like this. Jesus is like that. Jesus is just love. Jesus doesn't really hate people and he doesn't send people to hell. And, and while some of that's true, a lot of it's not. And oftentimes we don't balance all of these truths together. But the author here, the, the, the pastor, the preacher, wants us to see doctrinally who is Jesus. He's the apostle and he's the high priest. Well, what does apostle speak to? Really, it speaks of his incarnation. This is interesting. This is the only time in the New Testament that Jesus is called an apostle. What does it mean to be an apostle? Sent one. Sent by God. It harkens really back to the first couple words about Jesus, right? And there in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. He's an apostle. But it speaks of his incarnation, his breaking into humanity, into existence. He's breaking into a life that we experience. What's really interesting is our flesh became his flesh. He identified with us. He's the sent one. He's the apostle. But he goes on to say he's the high priest of our confession. What does a high priest do? A high priest represents people before God. And what has Jesus come to do? He's not just come to be incarnate, not just to come in the flesh, but he's come to represent us before God. He's our high priest. He makes, as chapter 2 makes clear, he makes propitiation 
for our sins. He atones for our sin against God. He is the archetype of the type of the saturnally. And that's what is being said here. It's telling us about who he really is. But he's not a subject to study. We've talked about that a lot. As we read through Hebrews and as we study it, you'll be tempted in the next coming months to really understand Jesus and study him as a subject. And he is a noun. Jesus is a noun. And what is a noun? It's a place or a thing or an idea or a person. And Jesus is a person. And so when the pastor calls us and says, hey, you need to consider Jesus, and you need to do so doctrinally, and you need to know who he is. He incarnate, he's God incarnate who made sacrifice, propitiation for your sins. That's who he is. We study that. We consider that. What are the implications of that? How beautiful is that? But we don't leave it there. He's a person. And so as we consider Jesus, we do so relationally. Relationally. Consider Jesus And do so by considering him relationally. What does that look like? Well, it looks like pursuing intimacy with him. We'll talk more about this next week. But I want to talk a little bit about things that keep us from having an intimate relationship with somebody else. Top of the list, what is it? Fear of rejection. Some of you might say, hey, I'd love to have a relationship with Jesus. I would love to pursue him, but I'm afraid that he'll reject me. If he really knew who I was. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. If, you, if that's you today, I'd, I would love to chat with you. But Romans 8 is for you. Romans 8 is for you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no chance of rejection. If you're in Christ, you can't be rejected. The scripture says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How do we know he loved us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him freely. How will he not graciously give us everything else that we need? The reality is you misunderstand the gospel if you fear rejection from God. It's not a reality. So what does the scriptures really say about him doctrinally? Well, if we understand that, it will help us to relate to him relationally. But here's another thing that really gets us, and this is where we'll close. One barrier that hinders us from having a sincere and a thriving relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus on a daily basis is the quality of time that we're willing to give him. There's not one person in this room that I don't care about. And you say, well, you don't even know me. Well, I'd like to get to know you. And if those who do know me know that that's probably true. But at the end of the day, I only have so much time. And I'd love to give you more of my time. I'd love to give my wife more of my time. But at the end of the day, I just can't do it. I'm a finite creature. And so oftentimes maybe you feel that the time that you spend with me or the time that you spend with somebody else is just not the quality time that you'd like to have with them. Maybe the the quality's there or maybe it's not the quantity of time. And maybe you feel when you're around certain people, you feel hurried. And when your relationship with somebody else is based on time that has been hurried and poor quality, the depth of that relationship suffers. That's not hard for us to understand. And it's true of us with each other as we are relational creatures. But it's also true of us with God as we are both relational beings. One pastor speaking to this, he said this. One barrier to full intimacy with the Savior is hurriedness. Intimacy may not be rushed. To meet with the God and the Son of God takes time. We cannot dash into his presence and choke down some spiritual inwardness before we hurry out to our one o'clock appointment. Inwardness is time-consuming. Open only to minds willing to sample spirituality in small bites, savoring each one. Intimacy without Christ comes from entering his presence with inner peace rather than bursting into his presence, rather than bursting into his presence from the hassles of life. A relaxed contemplation of the dwelling, of the indwelling Christ allows for an inner communion impossible to achieve while oppressed by busyness and care. Holy living is not abrupt living. And no one who hurries into the presence of God 
is content to remain for long. Those who hurry in, hurry out. One of the ways that we can truly consider Jesus is by slowing down and by taking the time to enjoy his presence. And that's exactly what we're going to do right now. That's what we do every Sunday. I want you to think about that right now. And you say, well, you've preached too long. That's probably true. But you know what else is true? That Jesus is worthy of greater honor and glory. And if we could slow down for just a few more minutes and we could just consider Jesus together and not be in a hurry and not try to rush out here and not be thinking of the next thing that we got to do, but sit here and savor every single I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to stand together, and we're going to sing. And as we do, I want you to think about every word that we say. We will feast in the house of Zion. And we're going to feast at King Jesus' table. Let's start savoring that relationally with him right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've revealed your son to us. That you've allowed us to see who you are, who we are. Father, that you have allowed us to, through comparison and contrast, to understand the sort of relationship that our Lord and Savior actually has with us. Now he is so much greater. Father, we thank you for allegory. We thank you for stories that tell us about Jesus. Father, we thank you for the heroes of our faith who have gone before us. As we'll read about in chapter 11. Father, those biblical heroes in chapter 11 and all the way back to the beginning of the book, we're thankful for them and how they image you and how they teach us about ourselves in good and bad ways and about you in every good way. Father, we pray that we would be faithful this week. We just ask for this week, would you allow us to be faithful to Jesus as he is to us? Would you allow us to be faithful as we sing about him? And would we savor every single bite? We ask this in his name. Amen.